All right, guys, we are back with our teaching in the book of Revelation. Last time we were here, we were wrapping up the seven churches. Now, let's do a quick review of the seven churches. Remember, the idea concerning the seven churches and understanding it, it had both a literal as well as a prophetic meaning. Literal, meaning that there was a message and relevance to the church that John was writing to in his day. So therefore, the message had a meaning to them. And the things that were mentioned concerning those churches, they were issues that were taking place in the church. But also in understanding the seven letters, it had a prophetic meaning. And that was our primary idea as we worked through the seven letters. We interpreted it and understood these letters from the sense of they represent the church age as a whole. And we basically see periods within the church age as we move from the time of the conception of the church, that's the birth of the church in the day of Pentecost, up unto the period of the rapture of the church. And there is a sense of overlapping of these particular ages and ideas concerning the ages of the church, but nevertheless, it speaks of the ages as we move from the point of conception to the time of the rapture. And so we basically began with the church of Ephesus, chapter, chapter 2. And it was basically the apostolic church, the church of the apostles, roughly about 32, 100 AD. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these in great detail, but just kind of wrap some things up so that we can move to the next section. And then we went to the church of Smyrna, which dealt with the time or the period of persecution that we basically saw uh, with the church, roughly around 100 to about 350 AD. So this idea depicted the suffering of the church. Then there was the church of Pergamos. And that primary idea here was the marriage of the church to the state. That is when the when the state, we see this with Constantine, and he basically had made Christianity a state religion, and people came into the church without true conversion. It was politically expedient for them to do so. Then there is Thyatira, and this depicted the age, the dark age of the church, when the Roman Catholic Church exerted a great amount of authority over Christendom in its entirety. And we see a lot of false heretical teachings entered into the church at this particular time. And that was Thyatira. And he moved from that point, from the dark ages, Thyatira, to Sardis. And Sardis was a depiction of the Reformation. This was the great Reformation that we understand during the time of Martin Luther. And so, but nevertheless, Although this was a period of certain reestablishment of proper doctrinal teachings, the church soon died out spiritually because people were simply, the state church was being instituted once again. The whole system of state churches and people were simply considering themselves to be members of the church by virtue of infant baptism 
and not personal faith. And so that's why Sardis was called the dead church. And then we move into the next period, which was the period of evangelism. It is the church of Philadelphia to the which Jesus, like the church of Smyrna, had nothing bad to say about, basically 1700 to 1900. And finally, we ended with the last church was Laodicea, which was the church that was not saved, the totally unsaved church, wealthy, but nevertheless, a church that did not know Jesus. Jesus' word was he stands at the door and knock outside of the church, beckoning to come in. The thing to remember about Laodicea, as it is the final age of the church, that is, this will be the predominant view of how the church would be right before the time of the rapture, the last time of the church. It reflects this present church in this present age. So therefore, if there is a descriptor that should be given for us today, it would be Laodicea a wealthy church, but nevertheless, a self-deceived church, a church in which Jesus is no longer in the church. He is outside of the church. Okay. This speaks of the great apostasy. As we talked about it earlier, apostasy simply means the falling away, falling away of a doctrinal truth or doctrinal truths that were once held by the church. The church no longer believes, all right? And, and, and a, a number of things, maybe we'll bring a video about that later on, and, but this is not the time to get into that particular concept. But this is the state of the church today. So that wraps up the church ages. Now, as we get ready to get into chapter four, what we have to see is these are the future events of the church. Remember in Revelation 1, and, and it was basically divided up. Verse 19, I believe it was, when Jesus says to write about the things that were, the things that he sees, and the things that shall be. And that gave us a threefold division of the book of Revelation. The things that he saw, the exalted Christ, chapter 1, the things that he is seeing in the present tense, and that is the churches chapters two and three, and the things that shall be hereafter, chapters four through the end of the book in chapter 22. All right. So now we move into that third section because we just finished the second section, the things that he saw, chapters two and three, that is the seven churches. He moves into the future event of chapter four. So chapter four prepares us for the future events that John is about to see in chapters four through 22. Now, this also speaks of that particular period that we refer to as the time of the tribulation. The tribulation is understood as a period of time following the rapture of the church. So once the church is taken out of here, in the rapture, we'll begin that seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. I'm sorry, the Tribulation to be exact. The Great Tribulation is that final three-and-a-half-year period. So once again, the Tribulation is a seven-year period, and that seven-year period will be divided into two 
three and a half year periods. That final three and a half years, that's what is referred to as the great tribulation. But nevertheless, it is the period of time in which the Lord himself begins to bring great judgment upon the world. And also it speaks of as we move to that final, the end of that tribulation. It is at the end of the tribulation that we have the return of Jesus, the Messiah. So this is what we also refer to as the second advent. But nevertheless, as we move through the tribulation period, the judgments of God are going to be revealed. They are going to be more severe as we approach the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's basically the idea. But before we get into uh, the judgments of God that would be revealed during the tribulation period, notice the tribulation period as a whole is also called in Old Testament language, the day of the Lord, because it always speaks of the judgments that God will be bringing upon an unbelieving world, the day of the Lord. But anyway, but before we get into the tribulation period, we have this intermediate part because here's what you have to understand. All of this, remember in Revelation chapter one, what is it is the revelation of Jesus himself. So therefore, only Jesus can give us the picture of this revelation. And that's what we have in chapters four and five. We have the throne room of God with the presentation of the lamb. And it is the lamb who will receive the scroll. The scroll is nothing more than the revelation of things to come. That is chapters four through 22 revelation of the future. And only Jesus the lamb who will receive this scroll from the hand of God himself. That is Jesus receives this revelation from the father. And he is the only one who is qualified, uniquely qualified to open the scrolls. That is to give this revelation of God and make it known to the world. And so therefore what we see here is a, it's kind of like a play. It is a picturesque scene in heaven of the glorious throne room of God as the Lamb of God prepares to receive the revelation from God, the great scroll, and reveal this to John. All right. And so that's basically where we are in chapter four. So let us get ready for chapter four and begin. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So now some some look at the after these things as an indication of the rapture. And I don't think that's the proper way to look at it. And. and even now, now, it is true after these things, meta tata, these are two encapsulating words after these things. You'll see it at the beginning of verse number one and at the end of verse number one. It lets us know that we're taking you to the events that follow the seven churches. It's not particularly the rapture. 
It doesn't say that this is the rapture of the church. It just simply says these are the events that follow the church. Now, if you want to understand that and interpret it properly, that is simply these are the events that will follow the church age. That's the best way to understand it. Okay. And it is true that 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 and let me let me just give some interpretation to it right now. These events will follow the rapture of the church. That is true. But this verse is not saying that this is the rapture of the church. And notice there is a distinction. They follow the rapture. But this verse is not saying this is the rapture. OK, so after these things, what, what do we see here? There John is given an invitation to come into heaven. Notice there is a door that is open into heaven to give him further revelation. And he hears a, hears a voice that commands him. That's the invitation to come up to heaven so that he can see what will take place in the future again after these things. So now we see the events that are about to unfold after the church has been raptured into heaven. Again, this is not verse, doesn't mean the rapture, okay? But the rapture must come first, and then these events will take place. So now John has his invitation. So let's continue. He says, I was immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Okay, so immediately he's taken to the throne room of God in heaven. And so and that's what then that's the idea. You have to get that particular picture in mind. So imagine the throne of God and the throne room of God. And there he's he says he was taken in the spirit. So it doesn't mean that John bodily went into heaven. It just simply means that his spirit was taken, translated into a vision. He was able to see the throne room of heaven by virtue of the spirit's hand upon him. And so he saw the throne of God. Now, the one who is on the throne is God the Father, because later on we're going to see as we move into chapter five will be the introduction of Jesus as the lion, the from the one who descends from the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God. But here clearly is God, the father sitting on the throne on his glorious throne, because the whole room is depicted as a glorious room. So he is sitting on the throne and then it says, Around him was a particular glow from that throne like Jasper. That is the, the sense of a diamond, a clear diamond. And the Sardis has a reddish hue. So there was some sense of a bright light that came from the throne of God that shone like diamond and with a reddish hue in appearance. And it was a rainbow 
that surrounded his throne. Can you picture all of that? The light and the reddish hue and then the rainbow that surrounded his throne with an emerald in the appearance. So also some sort of a green hue that came from the throne of God. But the picture that I think that God is simply trying to give us is that the throne of God is one that is brilliant and glorious in appearance. And then verse number four, around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So now around this situated around the throne of God are other thrones. And it seems that these are I don't want to use the term smaller, but I will say the idea seems to depict less significance, less significant thrones. And upon these 24 thrones, he said he saw 24 elders. Now, the word here used for elders is presbyteros, presbyteros, presbyteros. I'm sorry, that's the right pronunciation. And it is a word that is commonly used, we see in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul when he speaks of church leaders. Now, the reason why I bring that particular Greek word up for elders is so that we can try to identify who these 24 individuals are. Some think them to be angels. However, they are not angels because the word elder, presbyteros, is never used for an angelic being. But they have always been used when it refers to humanity, a leader or an elder, a chief one ruler in the church. And then it says that they had uh, crowns upon their heads. And the word for crown is Stephanos. And Stephanos is the victor's crown, is the victor's crown. And only those who are of the saints of God, human beings, have the victor's crown. Then it says that they had white garments. And we always recall that the white garments always indicated the the righteousness of salvation. And that is in order to be set, to have white garments, you have to be saved. Angels, that is sinning angels were never offered salvation. There is no place in the scripture where the angels who sinned against God initially, we see that all the way back in the book of Ezekiel, there is no evidence whatsoever that angels were offered salvation. Only mankind was offered salvation. Angels were the, and the angels who uh, did not sin. There's no place in the scripture that shows that they ever fell. So therefore they don't need salvation. Again, the whole point is when you look at the white garments, it's an indication of the righteousness of salvation. And mankind is the only creature in the scripture that was given or should I say redeemed that was given the ability to be saved. So what am I trying to say about the 24 elders? They're all men. These are all men. Now, I think it is. I don't really think it, it, it makes any sense whatsoever to try to figure out 
who these men are. Are they men, you know, the 12 sons of, of Jacob and the 12 apostles and whatever to make the 24? I don't know. The scriptures does not say. And therefore, it is absolutely unwise to try to speculate who these elders are. The thing that is clear is they are from those who have been redeemed. So they are of the church. They are of the of the church. I don't know. I don't think I should say the church specifically because we know that the church started when R roughly at the coming of the Holy Spirit after after the resurrection of Jesus up until the period of the rapture. All people involved in that age are of the church. But now before that time, we call that the Old Testament saints. That's not the church age. So, and, but the point is, we don't know exactly who they are, except for the fact they are men, human beings who were redeemed. So whether from the Old Testament and or the New Testament, how God did it, we don't know. Let us not speculate. We just simply know that they are men. That's all we know from whatever age. All right. So the picture that we have is the glorious throne of God thus far. And the, the throne of God is surrounded by other thrones. And at the same time, guys, also be thinking in your mind to the wonderful graciousness of God in that God would allow men. And you know how we are sinful men. We're no longer sinful at that time. They're no longer sinful at that time. Of course, they have been washed by the blood of the lamb. That's why I says they wear white garments. That's very, very important. But nevertheless, isn't it still a remarkable thing how our God will allow us to be surrounding his throne, his glorious throne, a holy God, graciously. God didn't have to do that, but nevertheless, in his love and grace towards us. Look at the wonderful thing that God has done to allow us to even come near him. And as we move through the text, you will see why I say that is such a remarkable thing for God to even allow us to come near him. So now let's just move through the text and you'll see what I'm saying. Verse number five, the glorious throne out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass like crystal and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now, let me talk about that a little bit. Again, there is that glorious picture and it wants to give set the scene, not just of glory, but a fearful glory. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? That fearful, ominous, magnificent powerful glory because what happened Notice, lightning is flashing and thunder is peeling and all of that so there's a very fearfulness to that particular scene but at the same time there is a sense of beauty and glory so you get that how our god is a god of great power and glory 
and wonder. And that's what it's trying to let you see about the very place where God himself is positioned in the heavens. And then we see the thing about the seven lamps, the burning lamps that surround also that are before, I'm sorry, the throne of God. And this speaks of the Holy Spirit, the seven lamps. And we talked about that earlier in chapter one, the seven spirits of God. This is the fullness of of the Holy Spirit. That's why we mentioned the seven spirits or in the seven uh, uh, lamps, the seven lamps, the seven spirits, seven always an indication of fullness or completion. So we see the person of God, the father, and also we see the person of the Holy Spirit being depicted as these lamps. And it talked about this great crystal that was before him. And I think this is simply done once again to highlight the magnificence of God himself. And also it kind of seems in, in a way of by, by this glorious crystal that is before the throne of God, kind of almost like something that in his glory, it keeps certain things a distant from him too. And you will understand the, the need for things to keep a certain sense of a distance from God because God is holy in the most absolute term in a way that we can even, sometimes I try to think on that. I said, Lord, help me to understand just how wonderful in holiness you are. I'll never get it. We'll never truly get it. We can only try to get that which God gives unto us. But anyway, before I start babbling about that, let's go on. He talks about the throne and the four living creatures. And now here we introduce the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. What we basically see concerning these angelic beings is in some sense that relates to God himself the, you know, the eyes has to do with the omniscience of God and how God sees and knows all things. All right. It also somewhat relates to his sovereignty, how God, not, not only just in the sight of God, but in the power of God to do whatever he wishes to do. But nevertheless, these creatures in somehow, one of those characteristics of God, that omniscience, not saying that these creatures are omniscient, but they relate because of their proximity. And we're going to talk about those creatures and their proximity because of their closeness to God. God has imbued, endued them. He has given them certain characteristics that are similar to himself. And so as God himself knows and sees all things, he gives this similar trait. Notice I said not, not in completeness, not in completeness. I don't think that's the idea, but nevertheless, they are close. Their, their proximity is close to him. And so therefore he induces them with a sense of this. And so we see them being full of what eyes, the sense that they see and they are aware of so many things. Okay. And these four living creatures too, to identify them. They seem to be cherubims, cherubims. Now let, let's, let me go back and explain to you guys, just in case you forgot what they were. Remember there were basic three uh, classes of angels. There were the 
messenger angels, and allow me to use this terminology. They were the lower angels, the messenger angels. Then there were the seraphims, and seraphim basically is the burning one. Okay, let me back up a little bit more. The messenger angels, for an example. Michael, the archangel. Michael is the chief of the messenger angels, okay? And then there are the seraphim. Seraph literally means burning ones, the seraphim. We see that when we turn to the book of Isaiah chapter six. Remember when Isaiah said, when King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and he said he saw those vision of angels in the throne of God. These were the burning angels. And then there are the cherubim and we see the cherubim. Remember early, even as early as Genesis, how God placed a cherub outside of the garden of Eden with a flaming sword. Then again, you go into the book of Ezekiel where God talks about Satan himself and calls him a cherub. And so the point is the cherub is the very highest order of angels. So you got three classes, the messenger angels, the seraphim and the cherubim. Now, what is interesting to note about the angels, and we're not going to go through all of this because this is not a teaching in angelology, the study of angels. There is a difference in authority as authority, the things that God have given the angels to do and the positions that God has given them to occupy. There's a difference in both authority as well as the appearance. And sometimes it seems a little bit confusing. And so here it seems a sense a somewhat confusing in trying to identify the class of angel. But I would dare say since the cherubim is the highest order of angels and we see these are the angels that are nearest the very throne of God these are cherubs. And the reason why I make that particular point, when we get to Ezekiel, if you turn to Ezekiel chapter one, we're not going to do that here. But nevertheless, we see that there that God also has. Can I say it this way, guys? Kind of like a portable chariot, his own chariot. All right. A chariot throne that God has. And underneath the bearers of this chariot throne who carries it are the cherubim, and we'll see that uh, being depicted in Ezekiel chapter 10, and it tells you that these are cherubs. Those are the cherubs of Ezekiel chapter 1 that we see who carry the uh, chariot of God, the chariot throne of God, all right? And so, and there is a certain depiction, those particular angels in Ezekiel chapter 1 have four faces and we're going to talk about those faces with similar to the four living creatures that you see here. It's very similar to those same four. They all have the same faces, but now here's the difference. I'll talk, I tell you, I'll talk about that later, but concerning Ezekiel, they all have four faces. Each one, every angel, every cherubim, four faces, four faces on their bodies. And they have four wings. Now you have to remember that four wings. So four wings and four faces to each angel. And that's the cherubim that we see in the book of Ezekiel. But when we get to these angels here, we're going to find out they're only that that's only mentioned by John. Let me say it that way. They only have just 
one face that is talked about here. One face, but it's a similar face to the face of the angel in Ezekiel. All right. So, so the point that I'm stressing is this. There are different uh, categories, classes of angels, the lower messenger, then the seraphim and the cherubim, the highest order of angels. Satan is a cherubim. Okay. And so, but even in those classes of angels, it appears in the scripture to be a difference in appearance. So all cherubims don't look exactly the same, apparently, seemingly so, seemingly so. And another thing we'll see here, I tell you what, let me just move into the living creatures. So that's what we're talking about. We got that part set concerning the differences in the angelic being. Let's just simply move into the text what is talking about the creatures, these angels that surround the throne of God in the throne room. Verse seven, the first creature was like a lion and the second creature was like a calf. The third creature had the face of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the almighty who was and who is and who is to come. All right. So as he talked about these particular creatures, notice what he says, the four creatures one of them had the face of a lion and then the other had the face of a calf and then one had a face like a man and the fourth had a face like an eagle. I remember what I just told you about the cherubim that we saw in the book of Ezekiel, how the, a single cherubim had four faces, but notice these, and I do believe they're cherubim because of the order of angel and their proximity to the throne of God, are cherubim. These bear a singular face. So the point that we're trying to establish, all cherubim is seemingly, seemingly, I don't want to be too dogmatic about it, but some have four faces and some simply have one face. In Ezekiel, the cherubim that were under the chariot of God, the throne chariot of God, had four faces. But these particular cherubim that are in the throne room of heaven only have one face, one face. And then, and so he breaks that down, the face of the line. Now, there could be certain sense of speaking with these particular cherubs could be representative trying to say something about the character of God. There is a possibility for that, but what I, but let's not take away from the fact that these are physical creatures with physical characteristics. So they have these literal characteristics when you look at their faces. All right. Even though it could be saying something, because I think all of this is trying, God is trying to say something about his person, about his nature, about his glory and in his, 
God and uncreated beings. You got to understand that God does not is not a created being, but everything else is created by God. So in the thing that God has created, he is manifesting certain parts of his glory. So he's making it known this about his glory with the lion, let us say that would speak to the strength of God with the calf of God, kind of like the ox of God, that would speak to the faithfulness of God. With the face of God, that speaks to the intellect of God, the wisdom of God. And then that for the eagle would speak to the sovereignty of God, the control of God. So all of these creatures in their distinction in some way or another speak about a glorious uh, person, part of God's nature. All right. But nevertheless, they are all four creatures that surround. So they are the closest things to the throne of God. So you got the throne of God and then nearest the throne of God are these four angelic being. And notice it also said too that once again, they're being full of eyes. That's the second time that it mentions being full of eyes. Remember what I just said to you earlier about God seeing all things. And again, the whole point that we've been stressing throughout this so far is how God is manifesting certain parts of his nature in or through these creatures. Okay, so the full of eyes, but notice they have six wings. Again, it brings, remember in Ezekiel chapter one, the cherubim had four wings, but here we see six wings. And also too, there were, I don't think they should be confused with the seraphs of Isaiah chapter six. Remember, sometimes people will think that these are the seraphims because the, because of two things. Notice in Isaiah six, the seraphim had six wings and as well as the seraphim sang in praise to God saying, holy, holy, holy. But I don't think that these are the seraphs here. These, these are the cherubs. I think these are clearly the cherubim, the highest order of creatures nearest in proximity to God's throne. And it only make it kind of makes sense when you think about it that way. God would have the highest order, what's uh, nearest him, right? But anyway, and so we have these four angelic creatures and, 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 and they are strange by our <laughs> imagination today. And what do they do? They praise God day and night and they praise the holiness of God's nature. What do they say? Holy, holy, holy. And I wish, guys, you can kind of get what, what God is trying to give us. That glorious scene, not only just brilliant to look upon, not just simply wonderful to look at, but the sense of that awe and reverence. And can you just imagine these creatures? Notice all day and all night. That's difficult for me to comprehend. And they always are saying, holy, holy, holy. God is holy in the absolute term, in the absolute idea of the thing. No, that's why no sin can come in the presence of God. That's why, again, the scripture says concerning us that even our righteousness is a filthy rag 
in the presence and sight of God. God is so, so holy. I hope to one day be able to understand that even better. But nevertheless, so the angels are there in a sense of continual worship of God. Verse number nine. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, might as well finish it on out. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and were created. So when the four living creatures begin that worship of God. Remember, they're constantly saying, worshiping God with holy, holy, holy. But at some express point of worship, the 24 elders join in the worship of, with, along with, those four living creatures to God who is sitting on the throne. They give glory and honor to God. In verse number four, uh, number 10, when it says, they begin to worship him. They throw their crowns toward God, toward the throne of God. So that's an idea, not only simply of worship, but it's an expression of thanksgiving. So, uh, and another thing concerning the 24 elders too, uh, what I think is important about that. If you can recall in first Chronicles chapter 24, I believe it is. King David set the order of the priests of the Levitical priests for their order of worship in the temple. And he and he created 24 orders of priests. And I think that has something to do with pretty much what we see here. I think there is a relationship with all of that. And as these the priests, the 24 orders of priests uh, uh, set by David. As they, the priests represented the people of Israel unto God, before God, in the same way these 24 elders represent mankind to God at this time. So the same idea, I think, is still coming out. We see these 24 elders being representative of humanity in worship of God. So as they cast their crowns to the, before the throne of God, there is the sense of thanksgiving and praise to God for his redemptive hand in saving us from our sin. So they're just simply saying, as we would say today, Lord, I thank you for everything that you have done. And they praise God for his, notice they say, he is worthy, verse number 11, to receive glory, honor, and power. And that relates to that holy, holy, holy. As the, and and you, you can't miss it. The triune God. Now, now, we see already two members being represented. That is God the Father, who is sitting on the throne. And remember, the seven spirits of God before his throne. That is God the Holy Spirit. When we get into chapter 5, we will have the introduction 
of the lamb and there we will have the full picture of the triune person of God God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and notice how we bring all of that concept into holy 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 and then we bring that third issue of praise notice you are worthy to receive what glory one honor two power three so you cannot deny the idea of the picture of three that's involved <laughs> but nevertheless where we introduced to genesis i'm sorry revelation chapter four <laughs> revelation chapter four the throne room of god the introduction as we began to talk about the things that shall be in the future so we are preparing ourselves for the period of the great tribulation. We have now been introduced to God the Father on a glorious throne surrounded by the four living creatures and the 24 elders in worship. And, it, and now we begin to expect, we're looking forward to what will happen next. So join me next time when we get into chapter five and we talk about the introduction of the lamb as God gives him the revelation of things to come. All right, guys, catch you on the next one. Have you subscribed yet? What are you waiting for? Subscribe now.